And so what we talked about so far is we talked about how their new life, the new life of these disciples with Jesus began with a hint about who Jesus was, right? Because we remember that John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, the reason it's kind of a hint is because John the Baptist didn't even know what he was saying, really, as a prophet. He, he didn't really know that Jesus was going to be the Lamb of God, like the Passover Lamb, that Jesus was going to die in order to protect those people who would trust in him from their sin. So it was just a hint. The second thing that we saw in that sermon is that, uh, that really the decision to follow Jesus is always made up of a series of many decisions, Right? You know, you make a decision to maybe go to church. You make a decision to maybe talk to somebody who's a believer. You make a decision, you know, to give your life to Christ. And if you grew up in my tradition as a youth group kid, you did that about seven times, right? And so for those of you who are Baptists, like 15 times, right, in the first year. Anyway, and uh, the truth is it's many decisions to follow Jesus. That's just true. Uh, and we also see that when Jesus invited these disciples to come and follow him, he began with a question, what do you want, right? Because he's really trying to get to the heart of the matter for each of us. You know, and so the question would be for all of you in this room, why are you here? What do you want from God? Do you want him to bless your family? Do you want him to bless your uh, business? Do you simply want, you know, fire insurance from hell? You know, what do you want from Jesus? Why are you here today is maybe what Jesus would ask you. And then last week we talked about some of the other things that happened as Jesus invited these guys into a new life with him. We saw that that new life with Jesus began with a new perspective. He told them, he said, come and follow me and you'll see And he wasn't saying, come and follow me and you'll see where I'm staying, which is sort of the context of the comment. But rather he was saying, if you come and follow me, then you'll be able to see the world as it really is. You'll be able to see the world that my father uh, created. And you'll understand uh, how it is supposed to operate, who you are supposed to be in light of who he is. You'll really be able to see the world as it's supposed to be. We see that also part of that new relationship and that new life with Jesus was really submitting to Jesus as a new authority. And again, this is a tough one because we live in a world and we live in a time and we live in a culture where really we're our own authorities on everything, right? Like we're the most individualistic nation uh, right now across the globe, but we're also the most individualistic nation ever. We're We're the most individualistic people that have ever existed. We operate as authorities for ourselves. And so the decision to bow the knee to Jesus and to let him be our new authority is incredibly difficult. Because as postmoderns, most of us in this room, we want to read the scripture and we want to go, yeah, we like that. We'll take that piece. But then we'll find something else that seems to be pretty clear and we'll go, well, you know, it's obvious they didn't mean that. That was really simply something that applied to the second century or the first century or whatever. And the reality is that as we read scripture, as we walk with the Lord and as God gives us the Holy Spirit, he actually causes us to yearn to trust in Jesus as our new authority, especially when we don't want to. Right. That's a good thing. And then finally, last week, we took a look at how when Jesus calls us into a new life with him, he gives us a new mission, right? And we see that what happens when Jesus invites these men, these disciples to come and follow him, they all do the same thing. They all go out and they start inviting other people to follow Jesus. They all start inviting people to come along and to see the Messiah. And there's a real sense in which that becomes our mission in life as well, to bring people into a relationship with God, the Father Almighty, the author of the universe, the engineer of everything that is through the sacrificial work of his son, Jesus. And so the, the idea of this first chapter of John is that everything's new, right? It's a brand new life with him. Some of you have entered into that new life. Some of you are simply peeking in from the outside, but that's the content of this first chapter. 
Before we jump into verses 40 and 42, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray. Father, thank you. Again, I thank you that these people are here this morning. I thank you that that they're not here by accident, but that you've got something for each and every one of them to hear or something for them to experience or for someone, uh, someone for them to interact with. So, Father, whatever, uh, whatever that is, whatever that reason that you've got them here this morning, Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this room. And I pray, frankly, that no one would be able to leave this room this morning without having had some type of encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Jessica Smith, we're going to put her up on the screen here. Jessica Smith has one of those testimonies, one of those stories that you love to hear, but you don't ever want for your own children, right? She's got one of those testimonies, one of those stories that you love to hear, but you don't want really for yourself either. Uh, Jessica was uh, born into a family where she never knew her dad. So uh, her mother gave birth to her and her dad was uh, completely gone. He was never on the scene, right? It's a tough life to grow up as a little girl, feeling unwanted, feeling rejected by your father, feeling unchosen. And then at 14 years of age, her mother died. And so she passed away. And so as a 14-year-old little girl who felt abandoned by her father, now feels, despite the fact that her mother didn't intend to die, she feels abandoned by her mother. She's 14 years old. And in her story, which I watched recently, uh, in her story, what we see is that she says, you know, my dad was gone. My mom was gone. I needed somebody to love me. I needed somebody to accept me. And so she said, I decided to turn to men. As a 14-year-old, she said, I started looking for men to give me my value and my worth and to give me my security. And she said, by the time I was 15, I was pregnant with my first child. And the husband, I'm sorry, the father of the baby was gone. And so she said, here I am as a 15-year-old. I've got a child. I'm trying to raise this little person. I'm trying to be a mother to this child. But I was continuing to seek my identity and security in men. And so I went from one man to the next man. I got pregnant a few more times. Inevitably, I would end up in abusive relationships where men hit me and they abused me. They did horrible things to me. I had several more children. And finally, I was so despondent and so let down with life that I began doing drugs. And those drugs went from really simple drugs to harder drugs to the point where she said, you know, in my early 20s, I was a complete and utter and total addict. I had children out of wedlock. I had a trail of broken relationships behind me, and I was completely hopeless and despondent. My old life was just absolutely destroying me. It wasn't working. And in the midst of this, there was a woman that lived near her who was a believer. She knew this lady went to church. So Jessica said, in a moment of weakness, I actually confessed and just sort of you know, gushed all of this to this woman. And in the midst of me gushing all of my brokenness and all of my story to this woman, this woman offered me a new life in Jesus. And I'm going to read a quote from this, uh, this, um, this narrative that she told. And uh, this is a quote. She says, she, this woman, began to describe the joy, the peace, the good time. And she talked about restoration. I can't say that I'd never heard that word before, but I heard it. I was like, restoration, restore. You know, it caught my ear. Then she started talking about deliverance. You know, like deliverance, it caught my ear. And so in her language, what she's basically saying here is she's saying this woman was offering me restoration. She she was offering me the ability to be made new, right? She was offering me redemption to be bought back and to be, again, new. She was offering me deliverance to be rescued from this old life that was absolutely, positively killing me 
into this new life. And what's interesting is this woman who shared the gospel with her, discipled her, led her into a relationship with Jesus. And the reason that I ran across uh, the story of her testimony is because she's a happy ending, right? Her story is great. She, she did embrace Jesus, and she was given a brand new life. She was given a brand new identity. And so if her old identity was the identity of, uh, of you know, a child with no parents, and if her old identity was uh, of someone who was an unwed mother and a drug addict, her new identity was that she was a wife, that she had uh, found and God had given her a wonderful man who loved her well. She had been given more children than even the children before, but this new husband loved these new children. But most of all, her new identity was that she was a daughter of the Most High God. It's a great story, right? It's a great story of redemption. And again, it's the same story that we read over and over again in Scripture. It's the same story that we see over and over again in the lives of people who turn from their old life to a new life with God. They're given a brand new identity. It's actually the same story that we see over and over again in John chapter 1. And in particular, we see this story played out of a new identity with Peter. Look at John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. I'll read the verses. They say this, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. He's interpreting this for his uh, Greek readers. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, that is Peter, and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So Cephas in Aramaic means stone or rock. And Peter, in the Greek, also means stone or rock. We see here that what John is doing is interpreting the, uh, the Aramaic for his, the people that are reading along, which are Greek people, right? But what we see in this story is we see that Jesus calls Peter into a new life with him, and that the first thing he does is give him a brand new identity, right? A brand new identity. How many of you guys have ever desired to have a new identity, Right? You know, maybe you've even Googled it one time, like, how could I fake my death? And how could I get, you know, a new social security card? And how could I move, you know, to Florence, Italy or whatever? Just start a brand new life with a brand new identity. Some of us would love that option, right? I've got to admit, there are times where I'd love to to do that myself. Although I would definitely want to take Krista and my kiddos with me. So I don't want to get rid of you guys. Love y'all very much. Just in case that was a question running through anyone's mind. But again, what we see here is that when... When God invites us into a relationship with his son, Jesus, we're given a new identity, right? We see it in Scripture. We see that Abraham is called, and he becomes Abraham. We see that Jacob is invited into a relationship with God. He's given a new name that is Israel. We see that Moses goes from this fugitive running out in the wilderness to all of a sudden being the one that God chooses to set his people free, right? We see the Gerasene demoniac in the New Testament that when he is invited into a new life with Jesus— all of a sudden, he is completely transformed. He has a new identity. We see that Mary Magdalene, who probably was the one that was uh, possessed by demons and may have been a prostitute, all of a sudden, she's worshiping at the feet of Jesus, right? We see the woman at the well. We see the fishermen become fishers of men. We see that Jesus and God over and over again calls us into a new life, and he gives us a new identity. The question is, what's involved in that new identity? And the answer is this. The first thing that we see that's involved in this new identity is that all of a sudden we have been made, we have been made into children of God. We've been adopted. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, right? Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, right? In other words, and frankly, probably if this was being written today in a different culture, Part of what uh, Paul would be writing is he'd say, look, now you're, you're daughters and sons. You're adopted into the family of God, right? And, and the truth is he makes it even clear and he alludes to this in this passage that before we were adopted by God, we were under the law. We were slaves to the law. But now we have all the rights that children have of their parents, right? Instead of being servants, instead of being slaves, we're now children of God. Every now and then, Chris and I get into a television show and uh, so we'll watch season one and season two. We can do this because we only watch it on our, you know, on our computer or whatever. One of the shows that we got into uh, probably a couple years ago was a show called Parenthood. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's an interesting show. And uh, in the show, basically, there's a, sort of a matriarch and a patriarch of this family. There are four children. And it tracks the lives of these, uh, all these people who are all parents, right? And uh, one of the couples, one of the children, is a, a daughters of this matriarch and patriarch. Her name is Julia. She's a lawyer. She and her husband had one child, but they've been trying for the last 10 years to have another child. They haven't been able to, and so they've decided to adopt. They went through an adoption agency, and they basically said, hey, we'll take, you know, preferably a baby, but we'll take anybody. Well, the adoption agency shows up on the doorstep with a little boy who's probably about 11 years old. He's a little Latino boy. And they say, hey, would you be willing to adopt this little guy as your son? And in the story, his name is Victor. He's on the left. And so Victor has lived on and off with his mom, but um, she's given up custody of him. She's got drug issues and all sorts of other things going on. And so he's been sort of, you know, in the, the throes of this incredibly unstable environment when he's welcomed into this incredibly stable environment with a new father and a new mother who are going to love him unconditionally and are going to treat him just like their own natural-born child who we see there. And uh, there's one episode in particular where everything comes to a head. The little boy, Victor, begins to sort of rebel and act out in the family home. He's fighting with his sister. He's being rebellious. He's causing all this problem. He feels very, very insecure. And then I'm going to jump into a transcript from the television show. Uh, Julia, the mother here, tells Victor, she says, we're going to choose a date next week to finalize your adoption. Do you know what that means? And Victor replies, not really. Julia says, that means we're going to go to court, all of us together, and we're going to stand in front of a judge, and we're going to promise to take care of you, and we'll probably sign some papers, and we'll be your mom and dad from now on. Does that sound good to you? Victor says, sure, even though it's clear he doesn't understand really what adoption means. But in the next episode, Victor finally understands the significance of his adoption. As he's racing through the house playing football, Victor accidentally smashes an expensive vase. When Julia races into the room, Victor says, I'm sorry, I'll pay for it, right? And she responds, it's okay, you don't have to pay for it. Let's just go back to the no football in the house rule. Victor then asks, so you're not going to change your mind about adopting me? And Julia responds, no, I'm never going to change my mind. And unable to wipe the smile off of his face, Victor responds simply, okay. The knowledge of his adoption and of his parents' unconditional love helps him to finally bond with his new parents. Does that make sense? And so the relationship that this little boy, and they do a great job of painting the picture, but the relationship of this little boy with his prospective mother and father is incredibly tenuous. 
right? He's fearful. And the reason that he's fearful is because he's loaded with anxiety about, are these people going to leave me? Are they going to keep me? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to stick with me? Everybody else has left and rejected me up until this point. And finally, it's actually his adoption as their son, this formal statement of them saying, we want you to be just like our own child and welcoming him into their home and into their family that all of a sudden he's got the confidence to really allow himself to be loved. Now, the reason this is important is because this is a major theological concept in all of Scripture. In fact, it's such a major theological concept in Scripture that the Westminster Confession gives a, a good section of its writings to it. So I'm going to put the Westminster Confession, chapter 12, segment up here of adoption. I'm going to read what the Westminster Confession has to say about adoption. It says this, All those that are justified or declared right with God, God vouchsafes, that means promises, in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, the gift of adoption, by which they or we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties, like breaking a vase, and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. In other words, what these dead white men got several hundred years ago is that what the Bible teaches is that when God adopts you as his daughter or as his son, you don't ever have to fear again, right? It's permanent, right? He's not going anywhere. He's going to love you in the same way that you're going to love your children. Can I get a show of hands here about all the people whose children have been so bad that they no longer love them, right? Nobody, right? What you learn one day when you're a parent, or for those of us in this room that are parents, is that your children can be pretty bad sometimes, but there's nothing that they can do to ever make you stop loving them, or there's nothing that you can, they can ever do to make you say, you know what, you're no longer my child. I'm giving you away. God promises to stay with us forever. God loves you and treats you in the same way that a perfect father would love his own children. Does anybody need to hear this today? Does anybody need to hear that? I mean, maybe it's just me, but, but part of what, what Jesus is saying, part of what Paul is saying, part of what God is saying is he's saying, look, you don't have to relate to God anymore like you're a hired hand. Like there's no risk of you being fired. Like you don't have to relate to God anymore as if you're a servant in his household. You don't have to relate to him anymore as if you've been, you know, sort of employed by him. You are his child. God loves you. He's adopted you into his family. You're safe. And because you're safe with him now, you're set free to actually be drawn closer to your heavenly father. This is part of your new identity when you're called into this new life by Jesus. And it's good news. The second thing that we see that's involved in this new identity with God is that if you've been invited into a new life with Jesus, you have a new identity, and a piece of that identity is that you're now made right with God and by God. Let me read that second section again. Is that you're made right with God and by God. I'm going to read a section of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. In other words, we've been bought, right? So, God paid for us through his son's blood. We've been bought. We, we belong to him. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed 
in Christ. In other words, the gospel, right? And so what this verse or these verses are saying in Ephesians is you've been bought by God. You've been redeemed by him. You belong to him. And the truth of the mystery of the gospel is that somehow amazingly you are made right with God. He makes you beautiful before him. Justification in Christian theology is the act of removing the guilt and the penalty of sin while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. And so that's part of our new identity. But more than anything, when we're given this new identity, God sees us as perfect even when we don't see ourselves that way, right? I guess what I want to do is I want to sort of help you understand these big theological terms. And part of the idea of justification, that big theological word, is that God makes you perfect. He makes you acceptable to him. He declares you righteous. Uh, There's a book that I read a segment of recently called The Whitney I Knew by B.B. Winans. It's going to be up on the screen here. Now, um, it is actually a story of Whitney Houston's life. You know, she died in 2012. And uh, this is a little bit embarrassing for me to admit, but she was instrumental in like my high school and college days. I sang, you know, I will always love you loudly with the windows down at times. If you guys remember that song. Anyway, and, uh, you know, every now and then a popular musician or movie star or someone passes away and that person kind of holds a position in your consciousness because of a certain time of your life. So Adam Yawk of the Beastie Boys was another person who died in 2012. And so Whitney Houston passed away. This book was written um, by B.B. Winans about her. And in this, the book, she died of a drug overdose, by the way, out in California. And uh, in the book, though, he interviews Kevin Costner. And so Kevin Costner actually recruited Whitney Houston to be his uh, co-star in a movie called The Bodyguard, where she was playing a, a professional musician and he was playing a bodyguard. And in it, um, in the book, B.B. Winans interviews Costner about who she was as a person and here is a little uh, excerpt of what he had to say about, about what Kevin Costner had to say about Whitney Houston. He said this, Whitney was scared. Argu- arguably, the biggest pop star in the world wasn't sure if she was good enough. She didn't think she looked right. There were a thousand things to her that seemed wrong. I held her hand and I told her that she looked beautiful, but I could still, still feel the doubt. Whitney asked for 20 minutes to collect herself, and then she came to the set. After only four lines, they had to stop. Costner took her back to the dressing room so he could show her what he had seen. Costner said, I turned around so that she could see herself in the mirror, and she gasped. All the makeup on Whitney's face was streaking down, and she was devastated. She didn't feel like the makeup that we put on her was enough, so she'd wiped it off and put on her own makeup. It was much thicker, and the hot lights had melted it. She asked if anyone had seen, and I said, I didn't think so. It happened so quickly. The Whitney I knew, despite her success and worldwide fame, still wondered, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Will they like me? It was the burden that made her great, and it was part of that burden that caused her to eventually stumble in the end. Now, the reason I put this in here is because there's this tension. There's the tension between the way that everybody else saw her, and in particular, Kevin Costner, who basically said, I held her hand, and I told her that she looked beautiful. I think you're gorgeous. I think you're amazing. I think you're perfect. And while that was his perception of her, she obviously felt like she just didn't measure up in a thousand ways. Now, there, it's got to be true that many of us in this room understand that same tension. We understand the gospel because what the gospel tells us is that when we're made righteous with God and by God, what he's doing is he's saying, you look beautiful. You look perfect. I'm making you perfect to me through the perfect life death and resurrection of my son. But how many of you in this room feel perfect? 
How many of you in this room feel beautiful? How many of you in this room feel like you measure up? What you need to hear today is that in your new identity, God says to you, when I look at you, I see you and you are perfect. You're beautiful to me because I made you that way. Listen again back to the words of Westminster Confession, chapter 11. It says this, those whom God effectually calls, those whom God draws to himself, he also freely justifies or declares righteous. He makes them right with him and by him by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It's the gift of God. Now, if you remember the last sentence of the Whitney Houston quote was this. She was asking, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Will they like me? It was the burden that made her great, but it was also the burden that caused her to stumble in the end, right? The beauty of justification, the beauty of this chapter from the Westminster Confession is basically saying, look, it's not up to you. You don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to make yourself right with God. You don't have to make yourself beautiful to him, right? God will make you beautiful to himself. In fact, there's a great quote that I heard one time, which basically said that God doesn't love you because you're beautiful. God makes you beautiful because he loves you. He lets you off the hook. Does that make sense? And so in the same way that many of you this morning need to hear that you're adopted into the family of God, and so you're safe, it gives you the freedom to come to him like a father. In the same way, some of you in this room, when you look in the mirror, all that you see is your brokenness. All, of, all that you see are your blemishes. All you see are your failures, right? It's always the voice of self-loathing in your, hear, your ear, and the gospel comes to you and through the words of Jesus, through the words of God the Father, through the words of Paul, through the words of Westminster Confession, and through my words up here this morning, I'm empowered to tell you that if you've trusted in Christ alone as your Savior, then you have a new identity in him, and part of that new identity is that you're perfect. That when God looks at you, he sees nothing but beauty and perfection because he has covered you with the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. How many of you need to hear that today? It's not about you. It's not about your failures. It's not about your successes. It's 100% about Christ's righteousness, Christ's beauty, which has been imputed to you. You are beautiful to God because he made you beautiful to him because he loves you. Last point. And uh, let me... Before I go into the last point, let me say this. The first two points I've made so far are really talking about how God sees us. God sees us as children, right? God sees us now as righteous or sees us as beautiful. What does that really do, though, for those of us in the room who kind of go, yeah, but I am not righteous? <laughs> you know, or those of us in the room who go, yeah, but I'm not really acting like a child or, or I don't really feel beautiful. Like, I'm glad that God sees me that way, but I know my heart. I know who I still am the last point about this new identity that we receive is that we've been given a new heart. So this is what Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27 say. They say this, I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, what God is saying through Ezekiel and also says throughout the New Testament is, it's not just that I see you as perfect. It's not just that I see you as my daughter or I see you as my son, but I'm actually going to give you a new heart with new desires. I'm going to give you a heart that actually wants to have a relationship with me instead of being a rebel. 
Instead of wanting to, uh, to be distanced from me, you're going to have a heart that wants to be close to me. I'm going to give you a new heart that instead of wanting things that destroys you as a heart that, uh, that desires the things which are actually good for you. They're healing for you as a human being, but they're also healing for society. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your emotions. I'm going to change what you fundamentally desire. One of my professors at Covenant College used to say, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. In other words, we have heart issues. We have heart defects, right? We have heart disease in that our hearts don't want God. We're enemies to God. We're rebels against God. Our hearts want things that are going to destroy us and destroy society. And so God says, when I choose you as my child, when I make you right in my eyes, not only that, but I'm going to give you a new heart. There's a movie that came out in 2008 with Will Smith and Rosario Dawson. And it was called Seven Pounds, which according to the the credits at the end of the movie, which I actually recommend, it's a pretty good movie, the human heart weighs seven pounds. But essentially the story is this. Will Smith's character is, uh, I think, an aerospace engineer. He's driving with his fiance, and while he's driving, he's sort of mindlessly texting, and he swerves into the other lane, and his car hits an oncoming minivan, and seven people die. His fiance dies, and the other six people in the car die, and so he is, uh, is saved, but he has to live his life with the knowledge that he has taken the lives of these other seven people because of his carelessness. And so unable to deal with the, the guilt, he begins going about trying to make atonement for the wrong that he's done. And so what he does is he finds seven other people that are out in the world that are good people, that are deserving people, but who need something that he's got. And, and so he finds a good man who's blind, and he makes arrangements to donate his eyes to this man. He, he finds his brother who's got a bad lung and he makes arrangements to give his lung to his brother. He finds somebody who needs a kidney and he makes plans to give a kidney to this man. And uh, the major theme of the story is that he finds this woman who has a child and she's a great woman. She's a good mom. She's a wonderful person, but she has a heart defect and she's only got a little bit of time left to live. And so he goes and interviews her to find out if she's really as good as the reports say she is. And he finds out not only that she is a good person, but that she's beautiful and he falls in love with her. And the rest of the movie is that he makes a plan to commit suicide in a bathtub filled with ice. And he calls the paramedics just as he takes his life so that they'll be able to save his heart and give it to this woman and thus save her life. And so it's this very interesting, somewhat dark, but somewhat beautiful movie about a man who gives a woman a new heart in order to save her life because without it, she'll pass away. Some of you in this room have experienced the feeling of that old heart, right? And some of you know that it's killing you. So some of you know that your desires are killing you. Some of you know that your distance from God, because your heart is at odds with him, you know that's killing you. You know it's actually destroying you, right? Some of you in this room have experienced the feeling of being given a new heart that all of a sudden desires to have a relationship with God. Sometimes you want to keep him at arm's length. I get that. Sometimes you still desire bad things, right? I, I had New York Superfudge chunk a couple nights ago. I get that, right? Yeah, we still wrestle with those old desires, but fundamentally we're given a new heart with a new desire for God and a new desire for things that are actually good for us, that are healing. Every time I see someone who has come into a relationship with God, they're called into a relationship with him, they're given a new identity, and they're given this new heart. Some people might call it regeneration or being born again. Every single time it's like a personality transplant occurs. And they go from being one person to, frankly, being somebody totally different. And it's a beautiful thing. And so God 
when he invites us into this new life with him, he gives us a new identity. He says, I'm going to adopt you as my daughter. I'm going to adopt you as my son. You're going to be safe with me. When God invites us into this new life with him, he gives us a new identity. And he says, I'm going to make you beautiful through the work of my son, Jesus Christ, so that when I see you, I actually don't see your sin. I see your perfection. But for your sake, I'm going to also give you a new heart that desires to have a relationship with me and desires those things which are going to actually give you life. This is good news, right? It was good news for Peter. This is the guy that sank like a stone when he went to walk out on the water. This is the guy that denied Jesus three times, right? This is the guy that cut off Malchus's ear. This is the guy that failed Jesus many times. If anybody needed to hear the Petra of the gospel, right, the foundation, the bedrock of the gospel, it was someone like Peter who needed to understand that his new identity wasn't in his performance, but his new identity was that he was an adopted son of God. His new identity was that he was made righteous by his faith in Jesus Christ. And he needed to understand that part of his new identity is that he had new desires to truly follow God and to live and to follow Jesus as his new authority. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you make us new. Father, I thank you that we are called, every one of us in this room is invited at least into a new life with you. And so, Father, I pray that we... um, would respond to that invitation uh, to a new life with you. For those of us who have never responded to that invitation, I pray that maybe some of those people in this room would do that this morning, that they would recognize that their old life has been killing them and that they would make a mini decision to trust in the new life that's offered to them in Jesus. Father, for those of us in this room who made that decision to follow you and to enter into that new life years ago at camp when we were in junior high uh, or at youth group in high school or young life, Father, or through campus outreach, or through whatever, whatever point in time we received your invitation into a new life with you, Father, pray for those of us in this room that made that decision, that we would remember that we're your children, that we are safe with you, despite our imperfect record. Father, I pray that for those of you who had been invited and we responded to that invitation, that we would remember that part of our new identity is that you've made us perfect in your eyes and that you now see us as beautiful despite our blemishes. And Father, I just ask that we would remember that we do have a new heart with new desires. And Father, I ask that you would empower us through your spirit to desire to walk with you and to desire to live in a way that would give us life. Father, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.